Good morning, my friends. How's everybody? It's a good day to live in Houston, Texas. Yeah. I know, I know that a lot of you know that I love the game of baseball. My family, we kind of eat, sleep, and, and breathe the, the game. And I, I grew up in a different world, rooting for a different team. But I'll tell you, last night at 11 p.m. when fireworks started going off in my neighborhood, which, P.S., the fact that Houston people have fireworks just laying around, <laughs> like, you got to love this city for that, you know? But I, I do want to say it brought a smile to my face to know that my friends were celebrating. Um, it's pretty cool that Houston gets to bring that home. So uh, this morning, it's good to preach to a crowd that's in a good mood. That's always <laughs> fantastic. Uh, my name's Kirk. I'm the teaching pastor here at H&W, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. Uh, for the most part, I'm thrilled because we get to be in a passage today that is one of those passages in scripture, at least for me, that I stand in front of with a level of awe. Just, it's a majestic, overarching, massive passage when you get into it. It's kinda like, I don't know about you, but our family, are, we're beach people, right? Some of you are mountain people, that's cool. Some of you are, I don't know where else you go, those are the only two, but um, <laughs> Disney World people, I don't know. But uh, we love the beach. Particularly, we love that Alabama-Florida curve right there, and we'd love to go to the beach there. It's a beautiful place, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, or really to any beach, there's that moment when you arrive and you walk out on the beach for the first time, and you remember how majestic it is to look out on the ocean and how gigantic it is. It makes you feel so small. You guys know this moment? It's that same moment when you're coming out of the plains and either... I don't know, you can go like the New Mexico side or the, the Kansas side and you like see the Rockies and you kind of go, oh my gosh, like that exists. That's incredible. Same when you look at the Grand Canyon or Yosemite, you go see El Capitan or any number of things. And for me, this is a passage that elicits some of the same emotions when I read it. It's one of those passages you read and just go, oh my gosh. How good is our God? How grand and majestic is his plan? How wise is he when it comes to the human experience and being able to take all of human history and sort of dwindle it down into one story? So if you have a Bible today, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. This is a familiar passage for many people in this room. And I'll tell you, my fear is, as we read this passage, that some of you, because of familiarity, um, won't experience the abundance that this passage has for you today. But then there's others who are here and online who don't know this passage well at all, and I want you to know that the riches of God's goodness and love and grace are found in these words that we're about to read. And I just want to encourage you to lean forward as we begin to read. So if you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to be in verse 11. We'll track through some of the other parts in a little bit, but we'll start there. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11 says this. He also said a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And after he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. 
And then he went to work for one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, he's rehearsed this, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf before, uh, because he has him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving for many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And now he's found the word of our Lord. Just pray with me. Father, we thank you for this passage. I thank you for this passage. And Lord, we stand before a story that speaks not only to the crowd to which it was written, but to all mankind for all moments of your grace and your goodness and your love. Lord, would you help us to reap its benefits today as we focus our attention on it. Lord, use my voice to speak your word. In your name we pray, amen. In order to best understand this passage, you have to go back to the beginning of the passage. So just look really quickly at verse one. Chapter 15, verse one says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So it's significant to know the audience. This is why. This passage I just read is a parable. It's not a true story on some level. Uh, parables were given by Jesus and they've been given by others throughout history to indicate a moral or a philosophical or even an existential reality to people in terms that they could wrap their minds around without having to read a textbook, okay? So what Jesus does is he tells a story to help this crowd, a group of sinners and taxpayers, and also along with them a series of, of Pharisees and scribes to tells them the story to communicate the, to them a truth that's significant in their lives. He wants it for both of them. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus' words are directed by his audience, okay? He's speaking to a group of people. 
And so he's trying to relay a truth to them that they can only understand if he shares with them these stories. So here's the deal. Jesus shares three parables in a row. You know he means it because he doesn't just give them one parable. He gives them three, all right? I want to walk you through the first two, and then we're going to settle in and study the third one, all right? So the first one that he gives to this group, trying to explain to them what the kingdom of God is like, is the parable of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Many of you have heard this before. And the shepherd finds out that he's lost one of the sheep and he leaves the 99 and he takes off after the one on this grand adventure to rescue the one. He finds it and he brings it back home and let's see what the end of the passage says. Verse seven says, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Right off the bat, Jesus is communicating to this group of people that within God's heart, there is an undeniable impulse to seek after the one who is lost and bring that one back home into his fold. Okay, we cannot miss this, that on God's heart, on God's mind is always the one who is lost. And it almost feels reckless because he leaves, anybody ever ask these questions as you read this? What happened to the 99 as he went off and searched for the one? What were they doing? I mean, were they like just really good sheep and they just like stayed all like in the right places and did all the right things? They're so good. They just didn't do anything bad, right? I have questions like, did any of them wander off in the process? Did he have to do a lot of this in his life? And I, listen, the important thing for us is what the passage tells us. Jesus doesn't answer those questions because he's not as interested in them. Right, what Jesus is interested in letting us know is that, Jesus, that, that he, that God, the shepherd, cares about the one that wanders off. Next thing that we see here that's so significant. In my experience growing up in the church, when people use the word lost to describe another human being, usually that word is used as a derogatory term. And I'm here to tell you that in these passages, you can't use that word that way. You can't pull that out. There's no derogatory nature to it. The lost sheep is treasured and valued. Right? So when we talk about lost people, quote unquote, that's not a derogatory term. That's a, sig- a sign of value on another human being who needs to come home. It gets even better. Look at this next little part. Verse eight talks about a woman who had 10 silver coins, but she loses one. And what she does is basically turn over everything in her house in order to find that one missing coin. Right, turns over heaven and earth to go find the coin, and it's this reminder again, trying to drive the point home to the sinners and also to the Pharisees and the scribes that God will turn over heaven and earth to go after that one lost, valuable soul. Right, the, the fact that there is a coin used in this particular passage is telling because coins are valuable. And so again, you just can't get around the fact that when we're talking about something that's lost, someone that's lost in the next passage, that person is infinitely valuable to God. Infinitely valuable to God. And he ought to be or they ought to be infinitely valuable to you and to me as well. Okay? Let's look at our passage for today. So that brings us here. Verse 10 right before says, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And then we get into our passage for today. Third parable, the parable of the prodigal son starts in verse 11 and says, he also said a man had two sons. This is important in a moment. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. 
So he distributed the assets to them. Okay, so this man is Jewish. And according to Jewish law, what happened when a uh, patriarch passed away is that, particularly in this instance, the oldest and youngest, there's two sons, his assets would be divided up. The older would get two-thirds of his wealth. The younger would get a third of his wealth. I don't understand exactly why they did it that way. Don't ask me. That's just the way it worked, okay? So when the younger son comes to his father and says, I want my share of the estate, what he's asking for is one-third of his father's estate. But here's the part that's kind of funky about it, kind of weird, is he's asking for it, not after his father passes away, but now in this moment, which is indicating to us as the crowd that this young man is far more interested in what he wants in the far country than he is in having a right relationship with his father. Because this moment is in essence the son saying, I am finished with you from here on out. I am severing the relationship. I think we as human beings can relate to the fact, particularly when we look back at Genesis chapter three, that mankind has been seeking after what they want at the expense of a relationship with God for a very, very long time. We're very good at it. So the younger son severs relationship with his father in pursuit of freedom. He goes off to the far country. Look, look back at the passage. He says he distributed his assets to them. Not many days later, verse 13, this younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Now here's, here's the reality for us as people. Again, one of the reasons why I love the story so much is it's so clearly shows us the gospel in its entirety, the whole biblical story of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Right here, we see a son who goes after what he wants, after he's severed a relationship with his father. And one more thing before we go any further. Remember at the very end, the father says, my son was dead and now he's alive. That's what I mean by severing the relationship between himself and the father. The son literally put himself in a place of death between he and his father. Right, no longer related, he's gone. So he goes to the far country and he lives it up. He blows his cash, the famine hits and he winds up with nothing. Here's what I think is important to learn about that. One of the temptations in life for us as human beings, uh, in fact, I've heard pastors say this before. Let me get to this in a second. Pastors say, nothing will satisfy you but Jesus. Nothing. And to some degree, they're right. But what I also know about my experience as a human being is that to another degree, they're wrong. Because there are thousands and maybe millions of things in the human experience that will satisfy you. They just will only satisfy you for like this long. That's the part that's tricky. If nothing satisfied you but Jesus, people would never make bad decisions. Sons would never break off the relationship and go to the far country. The reality is this, there are things in this world that are good things that God created and some good things that have been twisted by our world in sin that if you go to them, you will be satisfied for a time. That's how life works. 
So you can go after any number of things. I mean, like, for people who are drug addicts or alcoholics or people who are addicted to pornography, these are things that you might go to for a time that bring a level of satisfaction, but then what do they do? They leave you more broken after you use them than you were before you started. That's the danger. Right? And this is exactly what happens in the life of the son. He goes off to the far country, and you got to know as he's living it up, everything's great until he blows through all the money and finds himself in a worse place than he was in before. This is what happens in the far country. Right? Some of you have lived a lot of your life in the far country. You know it real well, don't you? Right? And so the son comes to terms with the reality that, yes, there are things in this world that will satisfy you other than Jesus. They just don't satisfy you like Jesus or like the love of the Father. Right? They don't last. Okay, so then it says, verse 15. Then he uh, went to work for one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Seems like a good plan, right? Responsible even for the irresponsible son. Verse 16, he longed to eat his fill from the pods the pigs were eating because no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers uh, have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. Okay, I want to give you all an illustration this morning. I want to warn you on the front end. You're going to go, what is he talking about? And then you're going to go, oh, okay. So just hang with me on this, all right? I want to unpack this little piece of the passage. Uh, some of you remember, some of you are too young for this, but some of you remember uh, what was called cell animation. That's C-E-L animation. Anybody remember this from back in the day? There were people who went to Disney so they could go look and see what was done in the animation process, right? Those people are called nerds. And <laughs> I am one of them, okay? So, so the way it worked before computers took over and made it much, much easier is that you would start with an artist who creates a beautiful background. And literally, these backgrounds were painted by professional artists who had hundreds and hundreds of hours of experience, just beautiful backgrounds. If you go back and watch any of these older animated films, you see that though the animation in the foreground might be kind of junk, the animation in the background is gorgeous, okay? So you start with one of these backgrounds. And then you start to lay these cells on top of it. And again, if you're talking 24 frames a second, they would take a camera that was like fixed above and they would take these cells and change them slightly over and over and over again that laid on top of this background and it would create the animation on top of that particular background. Okay, everybody following me? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Okay, so this is the process of animating. Now, a few uh, months ago, I was listening to a podcast on a walk by... Um, it was a podcast by the guys from Bible Project, and they were talking about the significance of setting. And they brought this up. And it was fascinating. really caught my attention. And one of the things I took from it is that it's so important that we understand that when we are looking at reality, that bottom layer, the setting there, makes such a gigantic difference. How we see the world makes a gigantic difference in what kind of story we're telling. Let me show you. Throw up the next one. So here's the background, right? It's beautiful. There's some maybe gnomes or elves or something living inside of these tiny little things up over here. Fairies, yeah? 
And uh, just imagine you have these characters who are on top of this. Now, these characters can do any number of things on top of this particular uh, background, but whatever they do, it's probably going to be viewed as cheery and happy. Why? Because the background is cheery and happy, right? So they could traipse along and have a good time, give each other high fives and hugs and kisses, and like, that's a beautiful thing. But look at this. If we change the background to this... Suddenly, that group of people could be doing the same things, and the mood of that particular scene changes dramatically. It's about the background, right? So when the background changes, the mood of the the whole thing changes. Here's why I bring this up. The son had lived at home with his father for a great portion of his life, and he made a decision to go to the far country. And when he got to the far country, he experienced what I would call the real world. Right? When he was in the far country, he uh, blew all his cash, he wound up desperate, and then he put himself in a place where he had to go to work. But when he went to work for this particular boss, when he was in this situation with that boss, he found the boss to be cruel. In fact, he found out quickly that the boss cared more about pigs than people. Right? You guys see where I'm going with this? He found out quickly that the boss cared more about pigs than people. And here's what happens. When he starts thinking about home... And the fact that, yeah, things will be better there. There are parts of his new world and his view of reality that start creeping into his understanding of what home will be like. You guys see that? And it's like he takes the background of this new world that he's learned. This is what the world is like, and he starts to superimpose it over the reality of what home is like. When I get home, I'm going to try to go to work for my dad. But the reality is, all I could be to him from this point forward is not a son, but a servant. See that? See, I think this happens to us as human beings. We experience the difficulty of life and then we accidentally start to superimpose that on top of our relationship with God. Anybody ever been through suffering in your life and started to wonder if God's good? Anybody ever been there? Man, I think we do this. And it's so important to the story to know what the background is, what story we're actually in. The son forgets the story that he's in, but then you see what happens when he starts to make his way home. He says, make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. This is verse 20. It says, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, he's expecting things from his dad in this moment. And look, he doesn't even respond. Verse 22, but the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Listen, some of you here and online, because of the experiences you've had in your life, the harsh difficulties that you've run into in your life, when it comes to your understanding of what happens when you come home to God, your assumption is that you could never be anything more than a servant, that you've got to earn your way into right standing with him. But what this passage tells us loud and clear is, as soon as you try to start serving, he's wrapping his arms around you and welcoming you home as a son and as the daughter of the king or as of God, right? So this is the reality of our passage, right? And you can see how people in the world, right and left, struggle with this, right? They just assume that God would never want them to come home. 
They just assume that God could never be that gracious. And I, one of the things, I, just as a personal note, one of the things I love from this passage most is the son has rehearsed this line to his dad about being a servant, and the dad doesn't even answer his question. Right? He just starts giving him stuff. And he throws a party for him and welcomes him home. It's like, that's not a question here. We don't think that way in this house. You're my son, you're not a servant. And some of you here, I just want you to hear this loud and clear, that God wants you to come home today to be his son or his daughter and not his servant. You don't have to earn your way into a right relationship with God. And you know what's so important about this passage? The younger son embarrassed the daylights out of his dad when he left home. He would have brought so much shame to that house. Your son disowned you and went off to another place and just like squandered it? Like, how shameful. But then the moment that the dad sees the son, he lifts up his outer garment and just takes off running. And I mean, some of you have heard this before, guys in those days who are particularly patriarchs with family wouldn't take off running, period. But I think what the what Jesus is trying to get across to him is like, even if it brought the father more shame or if it brought him more embarrassment to go out to his son, it doesn't matter. He's willing to experience the shame to sound like the gospel so the son can come home. That's the gospel. God being willing to take the shame of mankind on himself so that we can come home. And I need some of you to hear this today. And this is for those who've never put your faith in Jesus, but I'm telling you it's for those in the room as well who put your faith in Jesus when you were 10 or 12 or 17 or 21 or 25 and you've blown it and you've messed up and you've gone off the rails and you assume I can't come home. Please know today you can come home. God wants you to come home. Okay. That was a weak clap for the gospel, I will say. <laughs> So they celebrate. In verse 25, uh, it goes on, says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because uh, he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, it's the brother, and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I love that. It so doesn't translate to our world. Like, Dad, no goats. We're off, right? It's so great. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. A couple things to point out as we get prepared to conclude. Number one, the word slaving in the, this passage used by the older brother is such a signifier to me that his relationship with his father was not right. What kind of relationship between a father and the son has the son saying, I've been slaving for you for this many years while my younger brother was gone? And what we know of the father in the story is it's not on him, it's the son. He has a distorted view of that relationship. 
right? This isn't, this isn't what home's like. And in fact, the father says, everything I have is yours. And he's right. The other two-thirds of his estate go to the son. All of this is yours. And yet you're somehow, you've come to the realization in your life or you've placed the background behind your life that helps you understand reality that in this house you have to earn right standing with me. And that's a mess. And guess who he's talking to when he shares this second half of the story? The scribes and Pharisees. Like, I love how Jesus spends endless moments with these guys trying to convince guys who think they're insiders that they're actually outsiders who need to be made insiders by the blood of Jesus. I mean, he does it all through his ministry. But the reality is that this son thinks that somehow because he has been righteous and because he's done the right things, because he's been slaving, that he has better standing before the Father. And it's just not how home works. That's not how home works. I'm your dad. I feel like his response is, dude, I'm your dad. You're not a slave for me. Everything I have is yours. That's not how you view this thing. Now get inside and let's celebrate your brother came home. But one more thing I want to point out. This, this wrecked me this week. Uh, if you look at verse 30, it says this. But when this son of yours, this is the brother speaking, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Notice that the older brother tries to otherize his younger brother and he won't even say that he's his brother. He's talking to the dad and he can't say, look, my brother went off and botched his life. Look what he did. He wasted your money. He can't even bring himself to admit that the guy's his brother. He calls him his son or like your son. Like what a ridiculous thing to say to your dad, right? It's almost like when parents say it to each other, right? Some of you are tracking with me. Your daughter, right? But I think it shows this reality that this brother is trying so hard to make his baby brother them. Them. He's not like me. We're not the same. That's your son. That's not my brother. But then immediately the father tells him and reminds him, because this brother of yours was dead and alive again, he was lost and now he's found. And it's a reminder to everyone in that conversation that the playing field for all of them, for the sinners, and the tax collectors, and also for the Pharisees and the scribes, the plane is completely flat. At the end of the day, you're just brothers and you both need to come home. That's why when I stand in front of this passage, it's like, that is majestic. Wow. That Jesus could communicate this in so few verses, in 11 verses, or sorry, 21 verses. Astounding. Here's the takeaway today. Number one, I don't want to move past this too quick, but you know who you are. We've already covered it. If you're here today and you think that you've gone too far or done too much, you think that you've become something that God wouldn't like or want in his house, you need to know loud and clear today that you can come home too. I don't care who you are or what you've done. You can come home. And if it's your 17th time to come home, you can still come home. You hear me? The second one is for those of us who've been around church and maybe we live at home. 
This one's been eating me up all week, y'all. Last weekend, I preached at prison. I do that from time to time. And uh, got some guys there that uh, I've really grown to love. But one of the things that's always on their mind when you're talking to these guys in prison uh, is their parole date, okay? So last week when I was there, there were four different men that I sat down with and they wanted to talk about their parole date and our friend Bill Darnell had been working uh, with uh, at least a couple of them and putting together a parole package so that they could bring their best, uh, put their best foot forward and that sort of thing. And the second question that goes behind that discussion about parole date is this. You know, let this sink in. When I get out of here, is your church convict friendly? I kind of went, yeah, of course it is. But then my mind started asking like a hundred questions. One of the things that's missing from this passage that I just think is fascinating is that this younger brother comes home. And for me, when I read about the younger brother coming home, there's a thousand questions that follow it. What if he relapses? What if he brings home some crazy ideology about life from the far country? What if he uh, comes and hurts the father again and he ends up leaving and taking even more money and he hurts the older brother? And like all these what ifs that line up. And one of the things that stands out to me, like we mentioned earlier, is the passage just isn't that excited about talking about those things. Ultimately, what we want to happen or what God wants us to get from the passage is that he's interested in lost people coming home. That's his ultimate desire for us when we read this passage. He's not as interested in those questions. Here's why. I think that I spend time asking those questions because I have more trust in God's ability to save a life for eternity than I have in God's ability to transform a life after they put their faith in him. You guys see what I'm saying? Ooh, that stings, right? But the question is, is that a convict church? And of course our answer is yes, but then I'm just, I want it to sit with us this week because it's not just for convicts, it's for people who are outsiders, people who are lost in that ultimately valued sense, who need to come home. And we've gotta ask the question, are we okay with the messiness that comes along with those people coming home? The older brother, it seems like, isn't comfortable with that mess. But if we want to be the kind of church that honors Jesus, we've got to be the kind of church that's okay with that coming in our doors. You hear me? I think sometimes we're all fired up for the prodigal son to come home. He just can't come home here. You know what I mean? And we've got to get comfortable with the fact that God wants to bring the prodigal home here. Y'all, I heard a pastor preach this past um, week at a conference we were at, and he just talked about how the majority of church growth, like the dirty secret of church growth in America is basically people moving around from one church to another. That's not wrong. People go through things, they move, and that sort of thing. People move to different churches, and my hope is that they would deal with conflict at the old church before they come, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I will say this. He said... How I long for my church to grow as God brings prodigals home for the first time. Anybody feel that? How I long for the growth that we experience as a church to be growth as lost people find Jesus and come home. And y'all, I want it. Our staff wants it. We're praying for it right now and asking God, God, would you grow our church? But I'm telling you, that can't happen unless we're willing for that person to come home and to come home right here.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace. God, today, I thank you for this passage and the way that it has spoken to me this week. And Lord, I just pray for our church today that we would be a place that is serious about welcoming the prodigal home and trusting you to do the work in their life of helping them become like Jesus and getting on board with that work. But Lord, I think my biggest prayer today is for that man or woman who's here or online who's just wondering, does he really mean it? Can I really come home? I've done a lot of things that they would know today that they can come home. And so if that's you, if you're in the room today and you just say, it's my day, Kirk. I need to come home. Been running for God or from God for a long time. But I need to come home. I want you to know that God is ready to welcome you. If you're here today and you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, this is your moment. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. I want you to take those words and communicate them to God in a way that makes sense in your head or allows you to communicate from your heart to him. We don't always do this, but I want you to have an opportunity to do it today. So if that's you, I'm gonna pray a prayer. If you wanna put your faith in Jesus today, I want you to pray along with me. Let's pray. Father, I come to you today. And God, I have been the prodigal. Chasing after what I want and chasing after freedom, I have found myself more and more broken And today I realize I need a relationship with you. I need to come home. That's where the love is. It's where the compassion is. It's where you are. And so God, I want to tell you I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for the way I've rebelled against you. And I want to ask you today, God, would you forgive me? And would you save me? And could I come home? I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe he died on a cross for my sin. He took the price and the shame that I deserve on himself that I might have life. I believe he was resurrected after three days. I believe all of that, God. And I thank you that I get to come home because of it. So Lord, would you save me today? Everybody's heads down, eyes closed. I just wanna do this. I just wanna see if you're here today and maybe for the first time, you want to put your faith, or maybe you just put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, would you just raise your head and let me see your eyes? I just want to get a chance to pray for you. I want to see a face. Okay, I see you back there. Yep, I got you. Anybody else? 
pray for these folks. God, I thank you that there's a few people here today who've made the decision to put their faith in you. And Lord, we rejoice as heaven rejoices. God, I pray that you'd remind them every day that you are home, that walking with you daily is what home is. And they ought to abide in you and stay with you and learn from you and let your love transform their life. God, I pray that for all of us here today, especially for them. We love you, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So glad that you joined us online today at Houston Northwest Church, where our vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. If you have questions about following Jesus or would like to talk to someone about next steps in your spiritual journey, text Jesus to 281-946-6500. Connect with us throughout the week by following us on social and enjoy a great day.